This summer, climate change has been making headlines. But can journalism empower readers to take action about it? That's Hebron climate activist and creator of the newsletter, The Green Fix, talks about how to communicate the climate crisis while not getting kicked out of Christmas family dinners. Listen to the interview in conversation with our editor-in-chief, Annalene Ophoff. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we here? <laughs> what up? Are we here? Boom. Nice to meet you, Cass. Thank you for coming. Nice to meet you, too. So tell me a little bit about yourself. For everybody who doesn't know you, who are you? Sure. So I'm Cass. I am a climate communications consultant. So what this means is that I do communications for different environmental advocacy NGOs. So um, I work with organizations like Friends of the Earth Europe, Oxfam EU, and I work with them on their communication strategies for different uh, advocacy campaigns that they're running. Uh, I do this as a freelancer. Uh, and I also run a newsletter called The Green Fix. And The Green Fix is basically my passion project uh, because I decided, you know, who can spend too much time thinking about the climate crisis? Clearly, no one. And I wanted to break the the bubble that I was seeing in environmental advocacy, I was very aware that I'm working in this institutional bubble of people that uh, know a lot about environmental advocacy, um, but we don't really connect with people outside of that bubble who yeah. are concerned about the climate, but they might not know how to make a difference at a political level. So I launched this online newsletter and um, I, I mainly started it in like a rage thing when I was in a COVID lockdown. <laughs> and um, yeah, now I'm not in a COVID lockdown, but I'm still questioning my life choices. Uh, <laughs> but the newsletter is still going and uh, I'm still running it today and two years later. Uh, and that's me. Thank you. Thank you. So deciding to do communications for all climate related organizations, I guess, was a very very much of a, a choice of yours to do it. You could also work on communications for Shell, to just name one. Um, but why did you make that choice? Where does it come from? Very deep inside. So I suppose it comes from a desire to buy cheap clothes. What do I mean by that? No. <laughs> um, when I was a student uh, a few years ago, I was living in London, uh, in case you haven't guessed from my accent, I'm British. And um, I was broke, as students in the UK often are. And so I started going to secondhand shops um, be because they were cheaper. And I got really into it. I was like, wow, I really like not spending money. Uh, <laughs> but I also started reading about the other benefits of sustainable fashion and secondhand fashion, mm -hmm. reading about the impact of the fast fashion industry, the Rana Plaza crisis. And I thought to myself, hmm, in a very sort of simplistic way, oh, I wonder if there's other ways that I could be sustainable and save money at the same time. So I sort of got involved, like a lot of people do at the start, with individual lifestyle changes, uh, trying to reduce waste, reduce plastic. Um, I was trying to support Support local businesses and I really got into it but every time I was looking for places to buy sort of ethical brands online I was getting I was getting all these websites that were like you know here's here's where you can get your hand woven shawl from Nepal for only 200 euros because it's so ethically made and I was like yeah but I don't have 200 euros though mm -hmm. so I wanted it to be more accessible how to be sustainable if you're on a budget and you don't have limitless time and money to investigate sustainable choices so I started writing about this as a student journalist I, I started a student magazine um, all about this and 
um, I really got into it and sort of as I approached graduation, I was studying linguistics at the time and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have to sell my soul to do marketing for whatever organization will have me. Otherwise I'll, you know, be unemployed and living with my parents in the world will be doomed. Um, and I still have to wear these secondhand clothes. Yes. And I have to wear these secondhand clothes. And at some point it occurred to me that I was already writing about sustainability and I was doing it well. The magazine had grown. It had like a team of 20 people. And at some point I was like, oh, wait a second. People could pay me to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, wh wh where's the money? But I didn't do it for the money. I did it because I was really passionate about sustainability at that point. So I moved to Brussels to do a traineeship for the Fair Trade Advocacy Office in the media team. And there, my mindset completely shifted. I stopped looking at my individual lifestyle choices as the main source of how to be more sustainable and push for a more sustainable world. And I started looking at what was happening on a political level and how you can influence change uh at the level of uh, the economic and political structures that we live in i learned about um the role of the eu in this and uh started looking at at making an influence beyond myself so i continued working for an ngo for uh about two years and then i became a freelancer last year mainly because i don't know i i, I make poor life choices i guess <laughs> um i like the independence i like the flexibility yes. and um Uh, that's I've been, that's what I've been doing ever since. And why is it not anything else? Because once you start working for a cause that you're passionate about, it's very difficult to then unengage from that and do anything else. Because I I don't know the the kind of energy of the movements mm -hmm. keeps you going. And I for me it's so important to have a job that reflects my values at the cost perhaps of stability. I I just want to feel like I'm making my working hours count to creating a world yes. that I would like to live in in the future. I completely get that. Um, hearing what you said, I already have so many follow-up questions. So I'm just going to start with the first one that popped to mind, uh, which is that you started living more ecologically due to financial stress. Say, as a, as a student, you just don't have the resources to just go and, and, and buy whatever you want. Others would argue that being sustainable is actually more Uh, expensive than, you know, following the fast fashion and the fast food and all these fast economical chains. So how do you look at this discrepancy between the two worlds uh, in which making sustainable life choices could make your life cheaper, but then also sometimes it makes your life much more expensive? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question. And it's definitely one that um, I've thought about a lot in the past. What I think is that sustainability doesn't mean just one thing. It's such a broad word that at this point, everybody is imagining something slightly different when we say it. And there is not one way to live a sustainable life. So for some people, that looks like supporting expensive ethical brands because that does a lot of good in some ways it can support local communities that are making their livelihoods out of selling these handmade um, items it can look like um, in, you know ethical investment and putting your money for good but if you don't have a lot of money to spare then it can also look like just reducing how much you're consuming, spending in general. It can mean developing greater self-sufficiency and, you know, growing your own things at home. But it can also look more intangible. It can look like uh, doing advocacy and doing social media activism. Mm -hmm. So sustainability doesn't mean just one thing is the, the first part of my answer. The second part would be 
that we do make it very difficult to make sustainable or more ethical uh, choices in every day. For a consumer, if you say, okay, I want to buy a shirt, I need a shirt, um, but I've, I've only got 10 euros, and you go to secondhand shops, but you don't find anything that fits you, and you also have, you know, you've got a job, you've got other commitments, you cannot spend three days combing every secondhand shop for a shirt that might fit you. So you end up going to Primark, because it's there, because it's accessible, and it's affordable, and you know it's it's probably made in some terrible working conditions, but you really don't have the time privilege or the mental capacity to be thinking about this alongside your actual mm-hmm. life commitments. So this can mean that, um, you, you know, you, you prioritize your short term needs because you have to. But in the long term, those cheap purchases are more expensive. And I don't mean just because the quality is worse, because I mean, we know that the quality of a Primark shirt uh, is not one you're going to pass on to your grandkids. You know, nobody's here like, oh, my great grandma bought this from Primark. And it really this really to me. itchy, itchy yeah. fabric. I oh, love it. I can't wait to give this to my grandchild um, to use as a dishcloth. Um, but also that we have a greater toll, a greater cost in other ways, because when we live in a society that values short-term consumerism and that requires you to constantly be buying cheap things because because everything breaks so quickly, so your electronics break within a year, your clothes fall apart, uh, and you just need to keep buying cheap ones because you don't have the money to buy the expensive ones that will last longer. This is also a very unhealthy society to live in, in in the sense that it does not make us happy. It does not make us fulfilled. We do not feel good buying these things. We do not feel good depending on continuous purchasing just to kind of stay afloat. And you don't have much sense of ownership over the items that you have and the life that you lead, but rather you feel like you have to accept whatever is accessible to you, which does not align with your values. And this creates a much greater toll in the terms of... Um, our mental health, our physical health as well. We live in, yeah, societies that prioritize buying and sort of putting a short-term consumption band-aid on mm-hmm. our dissatisfaction rather than tackling the root causes of what is wrong with our, our capitalist culture. So actually in the long term, we have a much greater yeah, financial cost, mental cost, physical health cost, which in turn becomes a financial cost on the health yeah. services and on on the and on the system. individual as well and on the Still. individual as well. So I'm hearing a lot of you know ethical, sustainable, and accessible. Uh, those are the keywords maybe that you know come up a lot in your answer. Can one exist without the other? If we're talking ethical, sustainable, and accessible. I think, yes, definitely accessible and ethical often don't exist at the same time in the same place. Um, and the same with sustainable and accessible as well. Um, there's a real gap in, in making sustainable options. And I mean any sustainable options because there's never just one uh, available to to most people. Um, I'm mm-hmm. speaking, you know, of a Western European focus, but it's true around the world. 
Ethical and sustainable is an interesting mix because ethical tends to refer, and again, it's quite an abstract word, but it tends to refer more to the human rights side of uh, production and products. And of course, you can have companies that are perhaps putting focus on the human rights element, but then for whatever reason are not able to produce something in a way that is environmentally friendly. I'd say that it's easier to tackle them together because we know that what is good for human rights and social justice is also good for the environment mm -hmm. um, but for a lot of uh, small businesses this can be a bit of a, a balancing act you don't have to pick and choose but they're put in the position of being able to fulfill some ethical criteria and make sure that their workers have good living wages but at the same time they're using chemicals that are not good for the environment because they cannot afford to source better chemicals mm -hmm. so it can be a bit of a mix and match but ideally you should always be tackling them together because they are so linked Ideally, that would be nice. That would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> if anybody can please just fix that problem, that would be great. Thank you so much. <laughs> so talking about the green fix, the baseline of it is ethical roundup for the climate conscious. So you do uh, kind of intertwine those two very base uh, concepts uh, for it. But what is the green fix in your own words, uh, again, to people who don't know it? Sure. So the Green Fix is an online newsletter that goes out every two weeks. And the goal of it is to provide jargon-free introductions to different topics in climate justice. And it's aimed at anybody who has an interest in sustainability, but might not consider themselves an expert. Basically, it was started by me being broke, busy, and bombarded with information, but still wanting to, you know, kind of do the right thing. And I thought we should make this easier. It should be easier for people to take climate action in a quick way. And uh, without having to read a hundred things online to figure out what the right thing to do is. So each edition, you have uh, a news roundup, which is uh, handpicked climate news from around the world uh, with an explanation of what that of the context of that news. Because as we know, a lot of headlines are taken out of context for the for the purpose of getting you to click on them. Then there's a Q&A with someone in the climate movement. Uh, this could be an activist. It could be a, a researcher. It really varies. And then a list of opportunities that are accessible to everyone with a European focus and opportunities to get involved in the climate movements that are always free. So this will be like um, training courses that people can join, webinars, but also volunteering opportunities and petitions to get involved in, open consultations for the EU. I'm never going to tell people to use a reusable cup because like, if, if we haven't covered that already... Like, um, I, you know, maybe you should start there, but also individual action doesn't begin and end at reusable cups mm -hmm. and trying to reduce plastic waste at the supermarket. And this is what I'm trying to get across with the, with the green fix is that yes, you should use a reusable cup because it's a good thing to do, but don't use a reusable cup and say, okay, I've done my bit for the planet. It's so easy to fall into that trap because nobody is saying, well, actually, did you know that you can tell the EU what you want from this upcoming law and here is how you fill in a consultation? And did you know that this protest is happening and this online action is happening and you could get involved and share it with your networks and that if you get three other people to sign a petition, then you have more than tripled your impact. You also signed it yourself, presumably. And just so easily you can have an impact that is much greater than mm -hmm. your individual life, lifestyle choices. So this is the rationale behind the Green Fix. And now... We do some events as well where, okay, I say we, uh, about uh, a year ago, I expanded to become a team of six volunteers. 
and uh, we started doing some events. We did like a climate drinks in Brussels. So if you're ever in Brussels, you should come along to the next one. Follow it on, on LinkedIn and Twitter because we do them every couple of weeks and there's no agenda. It's just it's just drinks. Just drinks. <laughs> but we also do workshops and you know, things of substance. But sometimes you just want to drink. Sometimes you just want to drink, especially when talking about the climate all the time. But the mere fact that you exist, does that mean that the media is lacking in, in giving enough jargon-free context behind these things that we see happening all around us? There's wildfires everywhere in Europe. There's heat waves. The fact that the green fix is there to make this more accessible and maybe a little bit more fun because drinks. Does that mean that the media is lacking in covering the topic of the climate crisis? I think there's some amazing climate media outlets out there that make it their job to explain what's happening in the climate crisis and to make it understandable and accessible. But there is still this separation between sort of climate media and mainstream media. And while you have some outlets that are doing amazing jobs, you know, like Grist and the Carbon Brief, and uh, they even do explainers and Q&As, you know, they're really amazing at what they do. So I don't want to say that it's not out there. But as, if you look at the more mainstream media sources, we see a real lack of information about what is happening beyond shocking headlines. We see every day that there's record temperatures, record wildfires recorded or it's the hottest year since forever like every year is the hottest year since forever guys <laughs> that's not really news at this point and not so much about uh, the greater context of this and not so much about why this is happening it can seem really obvious if you're working in climate action and climate justice what the links are between climate disasters and the roots of the climate crisis and other injustices in the world but this is not reflected in everyday news about the climate and then mm -hmm. on the other end you've got some news that is still reporting on each disaster as if it's a one-off event we need more unified messaging across mainstream media because it's not it's not an editorial opinion anymore you know the the science behind the climate crisis it should be the foundation and the context of every piece of news that is addressing anything to do with environmental and social injustice yeah. and that I, I i see that lacking quite a lot mm -hmm. and i also think that people don't seek it because they're quite well, I say people, that's a very broad thing. But I often hear feedback from subscribers of The Green Fix, for instance, that say that they feel very paralyzed when they do see mainstream media, that they open Twitter, which is everybody's, you know, main source of information these days. Of and they see their apocalypse headlines that every day the world is ending, which is quite surprising because it's been ending every day for the, you know, five plus years that I've been working in, in climate media. And it makes it really hard to, to go beyond that, that sense of dread and that sense mm -hmm. of fear. You don't then go and seek out more information because, yeah. uh, it sends you into this like doom spiral. So the way that we're talking about it needs to change as well. Uh, and the other thing I would say, um, is that there is a real lack of information about solutions. We hear a lot about how bad things are and the things that are going badly because you know we're in a media environment that is primed to get you to click on an article and it's far easier to find a shocking headline about record numbers of this or that than to say that uh here's an example of a solution in in one specific town mm -hmm. because we it's harder to get the reader's attention or to show why that's relevant or important so yeah there's a, there's a lot of work to be done <laughs> um you are currently working on it, um, you know, within your own capacities. And so how do you bridge this gap between individual action 
which is how you started, the more policy level of everything, but then also maybe local stories to, to bring real experiences to the, to the forefront. How do you try to find a balance within those different ways of looking at it for the subscribers? Firstly, I try and deconstruct a little bit the binary of individual and systemic action. We tend to, to treat these as two separate fields and also the only sources of change that there's either you sat at home on your own trying to like recycle and, and, and then there's systemic change was happening in the European Parliament or like a COP26 as if these are so separate from each other. But we know that they're not because first of all, systems are collections of individuals and change can happen from an individual within the political structure or it can mm -hmm. happen from the ground up or from the middle sometimes. And I also don't like this image that there is individual action as if there's only one person that is trying. <laughs> like everywhere you look is not an individual, it is a movement. And even if we might make this distinction between things you do in your individual life and attempts to advocate at a political level, the most effective activism goes hand in hand that uh, the changes you make at an individual level, they they serve a purpose. They might not, uh, you know, tip the tide of action against the climate crisis, but they serve a purpose to reinforce behaviors and start a, a conversation with the people around you. I think this is one of the most overlooked uh, tools in tackling the climate crisis is we think that that the most meaningful discussions or the most meaningful changes have to happen in political buildings in the EU institutions or wherever. But I mean, I've been, I've been there, guys. There's not a lot of them happening there. But the greatest impact tends to come from conversations on the ground, from your friends and family. We're more mm -hmm. likely to take an interest in what matters to the people around us. So just having a conversation about your concern about the climate can uh, really shift uh, local attitudes. And if everyone is doing that, it has a huge impact in the long term. But people don't realize the, the role that that has just mm -hmm. just yeah, local conversations and, and small scale conversations. But if nobody is talking about it in their everyday lives, then it will always seem remote and disconnected to be talking about it uh, in political discussions. So I don't believe in that binary. And so do you think that we can kind of kickstart those conversations the easiest with very personal stories or with facts? I think personal stories are always the way forward. I don't know if you've ever been, you know, at the dinner table at Christmas with your family and you say, hey, everyone, it's really great to, you know, see you all here. I just wanted to talk about the IPCC report. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Every Christmas. Yeah. I'm like, what, what's everyone's thoughts? Let's go around the table. I've, I've, I've printed out some graphs. Um, I'll pass them around. And that goes really well. Everyone is really excited oh, yeah. by those conversations. Uncle Eric loves it. Yes. And, and you know, and then they're like, oh, you know, the problem with systemic change is that policymakers not listening to the science. And I'm like, I know grandma, but the thing is, like, I've got to get something out of the oven. No, um, it doesn't connect to people, but also people feel preached to. If mm -hmm. someone comes to me and starts quoting statistics at me and goes, we must do something, there is this number of, of carbon emissions uh, in the air every second. I'm like, 
okay, you know, what, what do I do with that? And also, you know, stop shouting at me. I'm just trying to enjoy my coffee. Um, but when we talk personally, when we make it a personal issue, we connect with people because ultimately it is a personal issue. I'm not going to change anyone's mind by turning to my, my family or my friends and quoting reports at them. Um, but I will have a more meaningful discussion if I say, hey, I'm really worried. I'm really worried about the fact that the city I live in is it has air pollution levels that are having an impact now on the health of children. I'm worried about the fact that there's fewer green spaces every year. I'm worried about the fact that people uh, tell me that I shouldn't think about my career 30 mm -hmm. years in advance because um, the world will be so radically different. That makes me scared. And the people that are close to me care about the way that I feel and I care about the way that they feel. So if I approach it from a personal story of like, this makes me scared and this is why I am making these changes. This is why I'm, I'm trying to, you know, go, go vegan or uh, advocate uh, or why I spend all my time talking about the climate on Instagram is <laughs> to try and tackle that. And that's human. People understand that. So they might not, even if they're not involved in the climate crisis or climate action, they understand feeling afraid and feeling anxious and they're more likely to, to have a normal conversation also because you don't sound like mm -hmm. a textbook, which is just kind of a weird way to talk anyway. And so just to establish it, you are still invited to the Christmas dinner table. I am still invited. They yes. can't uninvite me. Yes. I will be there. You will be there. <laughs> Grandma, there's something in the oven. Also the IPSSS report. <laughs> no, but do you feel, I guess you must feel a little bit spiraling into the doom scenario sometimes how do you go against that personally within your own personal mental health but also making sure that not maybe all the conversations go uh, or reflect on the worries and the doubts that you have or or is that real life it's definitely something that um, I've dealt with a lot and I know that most people that work in climate justice and social justice experience this as well. It hits me kind of cyclically. I don't know. It's like a, it's like a boomerang every time I think I've, I've, you know, conquered eco anxiety, then it comes right back and hits me in the face. And I remember last summer when, when the IPCC report, one of many came out and, um, it was, you know, apocalyptically bad. And I thought to myself, wow. I'm spending years of my life crafting tweets to try and prevent this. And do I really think that this is the best use of my time? Uh, and I was really paralyzed for, for a few days. I was, you know, trying to sleep at night in a heat wave being like, just don't think about it. But I was thinking about it and I was talking to friends and things. And I, I was going, you know, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to quit because I, I can't think about this all the time mm -hmm. because we're not wired to think about global crises all day, every day. It is paralyzing. And also I'm, I'm measuring my individual action on against a global scale of crises. But the more that I thought about it, the more I reflected on it and the more I ranted to my friends and made them listen to the same speech about 15 times. I thought to myself, it's not about whether we're going to succeed. There is no... There's no winning or losing in climate action because no matter what, the world is going to get hotter. But if I say to myself, okay, I see that things are predicted to be not great, so I won't do anything, that will just make it worse. That will make it worse faster. It is not about whether we will win or lose at tackling the climate crisis because the world doesn't work like that. We can always make things a little better than they were. We can always have an opportunity to do some good. And whilst there are still 
people on the planet, trees on the planet, whilst we are still here alive, there is always something that you can do to make the world better. So it's not win or lose. And then the other thing is that everything that I've done that I did to be more sustainable on an individual level and on a professional level has also made me a happier person. Mm -hmm. It has made me, I, I feel like a more fulfilled person. You know, I, I feel more connected to the places that I'm in. I stopped taking flights, which is a privilege that I'm able to do that because I really only travel around in Europe. Um, but it made me appreciate more the distance between me and my destination. The land in between was no longer an obstacle to be overcome, but rather part of the journey. I spent more time actually enjoying my hometown. I spent more time to myself resting and doing nothing because I realized that the productivity rat race is just part of the capitalist system that I'm trying to undo. So if there was ever a really good reason to take a nap, that would be one of them. And this just made me happier, healthier, it's made me spend more time outdoors, more time connected to other people and talking and meeting with the most inspirational people in this climate movement. So even if I knew that whatever I did professionally would end in, I don't know, climate apocalypse now, which let's be real is one extreme and it's the extreme that's in the media, but it's not some kind of guarantee where we're going to, you know, land somewhere in the middle between that and, and, you know, a bright, shiny, green new future. Um, even if I knew that it, I wouldn't succeed or whatever that means, I would still do all of these things because they only benefit. I don't lose anything. So that's how I tackled climate anxiety. And that's what I keep coming back to every time the boomerang comes and hits me again. Yeah, I completely understand. And, and I love the fact that you also talked about your connection to the land and seeing land as a part of the journey and not only as obstacles or things to conquer, things to exploit, you know, in the capitalist society that you, you've mentioned. Um, do you think we would all gain from a perspective that connects climate, climate crisis and the environment really to the, just the root of it, which is the land that we live on and the land that we, we use and also enjoy. I think it's really valuable to rediscover a connection with our land. I know that I was brought up in this, in this lifestyle, which is pretty common in, in particularly Western Europe of constantly moving. You know, you, you grow up somewhere and then you immediately move away to study and then you move again for work and you move over here to, and then you, you take your cheap weekend flights abroad just because you can. And it's like, it's like the world is a playground to us and we never really think about it. And we never really think about the distance as an obstacle because we have the time, we have the money to, to just uh, get through it as fast as possible. And so we also don't think about what that land is providing to us. We see a hill. We're like, ugh a hill. We see the weather change, we complain. We really regard ourselves as disconnected from the land around us, even though, you know, we need the rain, we need those hills, we need those different landscapes. And when we spend more time actually appreciating it, I think that it does make you happier. It makes you more rooted and more contented in your sense of place. I think it helps you develop community. In the UK, where, where I grew up, um, we have to move because um, the job market is is really bad and really competitive and you take it for granted that when graduating you will job hunt across the country and then you will just go wherever the job is it doesn't really matter whether you like the place or mm -hmm. not 
the place is second uh, in our minds in priority to to the work. And so you, you, you then always think in terms of, okay, but I might only be here for a short amount of time and then I'll move somewhere else. And so it really only occurred to me, you know, whilst working in, in climate activism in the last few years, that places aren't just kind of there so that I can play out my job, but rather they are, prov they are the things keeping me alive and keeping us all alive and giving us the, the food that we need. And, mm -hmm. you know, it is the, the fundamental root of, yeah, the climate crisis and also the climate solutions. Because we are sometimes caught up into, you know, in this rat race, but then also in all the, the worrying headlines, it can feel quite paralyzing, wanting to do something, but not knowing where to start, not knowing whether you're going to have the mental energy uh, to do so. Um, so for those wanting to even just get a little bit of a taste of it, um, climate justice, uh, social justice, a little bit more of activism, or just connecting to the land around them, what would you give them as a little tip? If you're interested in just getting a taste, but you're not sure where to start, then look at where your existing interests lie, because the climate intersects with every single interest, every single skill out there. And you might think that you have to put yourself in the mold of becoming an activist or suddenly um, becoming an expert in social justice, but rather look at the things that you already enjoy doing and see how they connect with the, with the climate movement. So if you enjoy spending time outside, if you're like an outgoing sporty person, then look into, you know, river cleanups or what local groups are near you. If you are more of a creative person, then think about using art to, to express, well, eco-anxiety to connect with other artists that are working on this. This is a growing field, actually, the, the link between creativity and, and climate action. Um, there's no like one answer because it depends where you are. It depends who you are and what kinds of things you enjoy doing. But there will be a niche for you to, to find a way to contribute to the climate movement that makes you feel more fulfilled and less drained and that doesn't, doesn't paralyze you, but rather sort of unsticks you mm -hmm. from that paralysis. And don't be afraid to try a few different things. You don't have to do it all. It can be paralyzing to think, oh my God, I have to go vegan and go zero waste and um, I have to never take a plane again and how am I going to do this? No, just start with one. Start with the thing that seems most accessible to you and find a, a balance that works for you. And that's going to look different for everybody. Uh, but if you want ideas, you could subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, that's a broad answer, but I there's like a place for everyone. Just, yeah, just find what makes you tick in, in the normal world, in your day-to-day -day life that you already have and see how you can connect that to, uh, to activism. Curious to know how the rest of our pop-up radio show went? Stay tuned for our next episode. This one has been produced by sound producers Neja Borkovic and Jada Santana. Support our magazine by buying the latest issue down to earth online or buy our customized t-shirts on everpress.com. See ya!